We are in Matthew uh, uh, eleven thirteen, and I don't know how far we'll get, although I know that we got to exactly verse 27 this morning, and that took us 35 minutes, verse 27. So we'll see if we get past it or not. Say that again. No. Oh, no. No, no. Yeah, I forgot. So, um, in our text here, Jesus has been talking to the disciple, or a couple of disciples of John the Baptist, and now, as they are leaving, he addresses the crowd. So this is Matthew 11, beginning at verse 13. In fact, the Lord says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Why does Jesus say prophets and law? Yeah, that's the most basic division of Old Testament, uh, law and prophets. Yeah, just like in the New Testament, we could probably make a division like gospels and what? Epistles. Epistles, yeah. And Old Testament was law and prophets, although there was really a third division. Law, prophets, and psalms, actually. The prophets are history, or include the history. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those books are the former prophets. The latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Okay? Everything else falls under the heading of the, technically it's called the writings or the Psalms. And Sarah, you have a skeptical grumpy on your forehead. You'll have to excuse me, I'm just grumpy today. Oh, I don't mind. But you can ask about Chronicles. No. We, we call Daniel a prophet, but the Jews considered Daniel to be a brand new book. The, the ink is still wet. So they counted it along with the writings. So Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Chronicles, the last books of the Old Testament besides Malachi, all kind of get lumped together at the end of the writings. That's, that's why. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is a spectacular question, and I'm really glad you asked. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about this. So, um, with Moses, it's fairly easy, because it's just the order that Moses got it from God. He writes the, the beginning history of everything, and then Exodus begins with the word, and. And so, it's next. And Leviticus begins with the word, and. So, it's next and Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy, and. So they're just in the order that they are. Because Exodus is the beginning of the Moses story. Leviticus is the book that's written right before they head out. Numbers is the heading out, and Deuteronomy is the end of it. So it's easy to figure it out. Um, then the books follow more or less a chronology with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, 
kings. Um, then, uh, the, and, and those books in, in, include the, what we would call the non-writing prophets. Samuel himself, Elijah, and Elisha are the big three in that group. And they're all caught up inside of Samuel. And, for, and then Nathan the prophet, Gad, there are others that are sort of in there. Um, uh, the reason that we have the order that we have after that with um, uh, uh, Ruth getting stuck before uh, uh, Samuel is really because chronologically that's where it goes. But that we, we get most of that order from the Greek translation called the Septuagint. So somebody along the line, and was it Alexander the Great or was it the, the, the Jewish leaders in the time of Alexander the Great, asked the Jews of Alexandria in northern Egypt to give us a translation of the Bible in Greek so we can understand it better because we don't speak Hebrew anymore. And so that's where this translation came from. And that's why... Um, and then, and then what you have in the other books, and for example, the Minor Prophets, is as Professor Eichmann explained it to me in college, is that the, the books tend to, to favor the longer book in a group where they're all from the same time period. The longer book comes first, and then they trail off with the shorter books after. So of the earliest Minor Prophets, Hosea and Joel, kind of. And then Amos, followed by Obadiah for very, very early. Jonah is kind of by himself. We know kind of the year he was in because he's mentioned in Kings. And then Micah, longer. Nahum, Habakkuk, shorter. And Zephaniah and so forth. And after that, then Haggai, uh, Zechariah Malachi actually have dates so they can be dated correctly which is why Haggai comes before Zechariah even though it's shorter we, we, we actually have the dates recorded in the books so it's easier to put them where they're supposed to be um, and uh, uh, and then with regard to the, the actual Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles which is more or less a summary of the entire Old Testament history it does begin with Adam, Seth, Enosh. That's the very beginning of, of Chronicles. So it takes us back to Genesis and walks, with, with genealogies, it walks us through. Um, and then, uh, and Chronicles ends with the return from captivity. Um, so it kind of is the entire Old Testament in a little summary at the end. I shouldn't say little, it's a pretty massive summary at the end. Um, however, uh, um, I was going to add something in there. Oh, how, however, they thought, the, the Greek translators thought, as you do and as most of us do, that Daniel should get grouped with the, with the major prophets because he's a longer prophet. So they stuck Daniel after Jeremiah and Ezekiel to kind of in, in this spot where he should have been. Although chronologically speaking, Daniel should come first after Isaiah because the order of those three great prophets as far as the captivities go, is Daniel went first, then Ezekiel went second, and Jeremiah almost went third. So they should be in that order, but they're not. So we'll just deal with that and not worry about it. But does that kind of answer your question? And where would Job go? If it was 
That depends on if you're asking about when Job happened or when Job was written. Because those two things are a thousand years apart. So Job takes place during the lifetime of, oh, Isaac and Jacob in there somewhere. Um, and and, and uh, we studied Job a while ago, but um, that's, that's just when Job happens. Um, it's before Israel is a nation in Palestine, but after the lifetime of Abraham. Because one of Job's friends, for example, is the descendant or the son of Shua, who was Abraham's other, one of Abraham's later sons through his second wife, Keturah. So that's when Job happens. Is around, oh, uh, oh, give me a date for the Civil War, somebody. B.C. There you go. There's the, do- the date from where Job happened. Fair enough? However, Job is written by, and can I just tell you who I think wrote Job? Will I get in trouble if I do this? Okay. I believe Job was written by Asaph, King David's musician. The reason I think that is because, I, maybe I've mentioned this before, Asaph, we have a, about a dozen of Asaph's psalms, and they are filled with parallel strange words and unusual constructions that are also in the book of Job. So either Asaph was a huge fan of the book of Job, okay, or he wrote it, one or the other, or both. So, so anyway, that's, that's why in English we put Job ahead of Psalms, though, is because Job is written about a time that comes before the Psalms. And then, and then it's by length. Psalms, followed by Proverbs, followed by Ecclesiastes, followed by Song of Songs, and so forth. Make sense? Clear as mud? Alrighty. Okay. So, speaking of prophecy, if Jesus continues, if you are willing to receive it, he, that is John, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So, uh, the, the people had accepted Malachi as a prophet 400 years ago, and now they've accepted John the Baptist as a prophet. And Jesus is speaking to the people who are left behind after John's disciples are going. Some of them include Pharisees, remember. And he's saying, if you accept John the Baptist as a prophet, who is John pointing to? He's pointing to me. So he's the... He's the the, the, the Elijah that Malachi says, the forerunner who Malachi says was going to come before the Messiah. So that's who John was. So if you accept John, you should accept me. And the problem was the Pharisees were standing on that without committing to it, a little bit like standing on a razor's edge. How long can you stand on a razor's edge before you get cut? Not long. And so the, the Pharisees needed to step off one way or the other. Do you accept John or not? And they were kind of standing on it without, they were saying, we accept John, but maybe not Jesus. And what else is there? Okay. And then he goes on. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. So why the children in the marketplace? The children were singing playful songs. And I wonder if Jesus adopted a, a children's song. You know, 
What's a children's tune? No, 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 no. Very good. Or, or something like that. I don't know which one it might have been. But whatever it was, Jesus points to the children. Or maybe the children were there in the streets singing right then and there. They're like children singing this song. We played the flute for you and, did not, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. So the children are saying, we're, we're playing. How come you're not playing with us? We're making music, you know. I got a polka going here. How come you're not dancing? You know, I got the banjo going. How come you're so sad? Because the banjo is the happiest musical instrument there is, right? They're just, even a ukulele can play a sad song. But can a banjo play a sad song? I don't know. But uh, anyway, um, uh, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Then the Son of Man comes along, eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton. Well, which one is it? It's, it's the same message. So I want to go to Luther for a second and just share some of his words. Somebody told me a little while ago that they like it when I quote Luther because um, I, just, I, I forget sometimes. I have Luther's works in my bookshelf right above my desk. I'm in Luther all the time. But probably you're not, are you? So, all right. So I'll share some Luther. Luther says, it is as if he were saying, we have preached the gospel to you, John with sternness and severity, but I with graciousness and gentleness, but you despised it and would not accept it, and you will come to no good end. It is also true that no matter how one preaches to the people, sweetly or sourly, kindly or unkindly, they are still not satisfied. I don't think I've ever seen sourly as an adverb before. But there, there she blows. Alrighty. What kind of sauce do you want with your McNuggets? I would like sourly sauce, please. Sweetly and sourly. Yeah. 19. Here's, I, I just quoted part of this. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunk and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. Um, what is wisdom in the Bible? Especially in Proverbs. Wisdom is godly faith. Yeah. Godly wisdom is really, really equivalent to faith. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you. How do you want to pronounce that word? Chorazin. Anybody know where Chorazin was? Anybody know what Bible story Chorazin shows up in? It's a trick question. It's only this Bible story. We never know anything about Chorazin. It's just one of the cities he denounces here. So not a fair question. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Bethsaida is one of those towns on the top of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum and Bethsaida. But Chorazin, somewhere up there probably too. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. What are Tyre and Sidon, or where were they? Say that again. Yeah, up, up north. Um, in what in the Old Testament we usually call Lebanon. This is where King Hiram 
cut down the good trees to help build the temple and so forth? Well, Sidon and Tyre were uh, way up there and they were right on the coast. And uh, a coastal city is usually a wealthy city because of trade and so forth. And they became very, very wealthy. I may have shared with you the story of Tyre before. Um, Tyre, uh, after a while, they moved from the coast out to a little island a mile out. And then in the days of Alexander the Great, he wanted to subdue Tyre. Um, and they said, ha ha, you can't get us. And he said, ha ha, yes I can. And he destroyed the old city of Tyre and threw all the garbage in the water until he had built a ramp out to the city and then conquered them. So don't thumb your nose at the wrong guy. Um, so Tyre and Sidon. Also, um, this is where, um, nearby was Zarephath. Remember the widow of Zarephath in the days of Elijah the prophet? And the Syrophoenician woman is from this area. Jesus had gone close to Tyre and Sidon, but not, didn't quite get there and didn't perform any miracles there, obviously. And then he goes on to say, and you Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. What's the, what, what does he mean when he says skies and depths? Should be clear, but heaven and hell. Exactly. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Should we go back to Genesis 19 and review the sins of Sodom? A homosexual gang rape. That's what we're talking about in Sodom. That's what they're requesting when they're pounding on Lot's door. Send out those attractive young men to us. We all want to have sex with them. Um, so that's, that, that's the whole town. And it says from the youngest to the oldest, all the men were there at the door. Um, and that, so what sin is worse than homosexual gang rape in this text? Rejecting Jesus, rejecting Christ. It's the sin. And there's, a, there's an odd doctrine we don't talk about all that often, but it's here in this text, which is that there are degrees of hell. Degrees of punishment in hell. There are also degrees of blessing in heaven. Um, those passages are not as easy to find, but they are there. Um, and if you're worried about your degree of blessing in heaven, just would all of you just imagine in your head that you have surpassed me in your faith and you will be ahead of me in heaven and you'll be happy and so will I. And are you okay now with there being degrees of glory in heaven? Just don't worry about it. It's okay. You know, it's not like one of us will be sad and the rest of you will be happy. You know, we'll all be content. But wave to me as you walk by and I'm scraping and sanding the windows on the outside of the front stoop, you know, because I'll be content. Uh, but more bearable for Sodom really preaches that there will be degrees of hell. Um, uh, the punishment will be more unbearable, even, even more unbearable for some than for others. Unbearable for all, even more unbearable for some. That, I don't know, forgive my grammar. Go ahead, Herb. What was wrong with the on that comparison? 
They, evidently, they also rejected Christ in general. Some did not, like Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law, but many others did. And we have uh, scenes of the Pharisees in Capernaum attacking Jesus verbally and rejecting him. So there you are. And by the way, would there be exceptions to this within the cities? Sure, just as there was an exception in Sodom, right? Lot and his, and his daughters got out, you know. Um, so there would, there, would be, there would be individual exceptions. But and this is a difficult concept for some to understand. But the exception proves the rule. Because the rule is that city was condemned. The exception tells us the event of that condemnation with Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. Does that make sense? Or did I go past you with that one? We know this, what I'm saying is we know the story of Lot escaping from Sodom. That, that's the exception, but that also tells you the event when it happened. That's what I mean by the exception proves the rule. The rule is that that city was destroyed. We have the story in the Bible. It's just that the story happens to also be the story of the escape of just a couple. Make sense now? Maybe? Okay. Look at that. We're on verses 25 and 26. And I told you we're not getting further than 27 today. So we'll see what happens here. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Um, Am I going to talk about revealed and... Yes, I am. Let's, on the bottom of your sheet, on the, on the front page of your sheet, the side with lots of typing and not a column, um, I have four questions just about children's devotions. Can we just cover that briefly? So um, our children's devotions have been going on here at St. Paul's. Joanne, will you help me with this? Is it since about the time that I came? Is that about when we started children's devotions? I don't think they were going on very long before I came, but maybe a little bit. Started them. So Pastor Sutton, Pastor Henning a little bit, and then I came. Or Pastor Henning not? No, no children's devotions? Oh, okay. We talked about a chair. For, I remember us talking about a chair for that. Um, after anyway, okay. Let's just that. There's in 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 strength finders. You you have five chief strengths. Mine is context. So the history of a thing. Why is it and when did it happen? That's my chief strength. So those are the rabbit holes I go down. Um, so uh, okay. With regard to children's devotions, which we've been doing, I think we've established for a long time at St. Paul's. Uh, what benefit does a children's devotion have? First of all, for the child. I want to talk about three benefits. For the child. Okay, there's a sense of belonging. And for the child. Uh, Sarah? 
Yeah, if you make a point in the children's devotion and it comes up in the sermon or a prayer later or a hymn later, then that's a double application. And it's good. And Brad? Um, let's move. Pa- oh, a chance, it gives them a, a chance to feel like they're participating. Yeah, yeah, to be involved directly, involved in a service, and um, also it gives the children a chance to get up and move. Now, some children will take that opportunity, whether you let them or not. But um, it is a chance for them to to come up and and move, sit down, wiggle around, and then move and go back and sit down again, and then be sitting during the sermon. Um, uh, and so forth. Once in a while in children's devotions, I've even led them on a little expedition. We've gone, you know, for a little walk, gone and seen something somewhere, stained glass window, uh, the old pipe organ, the new piano, stuff like that, or something along those lines. Um, So that gets them involved. Does the children's devotion potentially affect also the congregation? In what ways? Okay, hopefully vivid enough that they can remember. Anything else? Brent? It often does. It doesn't always, but it often does. There are times where I'm going to have maybe a challenging doctrinal sermon or on a difficult concept, and the children's devotion is all of a sudden on the gospel and not on the Old Testament lesson, and, or I bring in a commandment or something and... And there have been times where we've just done the commandments as a series. But yeah, essentially, essentially, hopefully something. I, 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 I've often told pastors when they come here and they're new and they wonder what should they do. And I'll say, take the most difficult concept from your sermon and now explain it to a four-year-old in three sentences. That's your children's devotion. Which, who can do that? You know, but Herb, did you... The truck has been usurped by another member of the staff. Yes. And so I and I and I don't want the children to object and say that's only Pastor Smith's. So I don't know what to do about I think I have to let it go. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, how does the children's devotion benefit the the preacher? Aaron? And explain it to somebody. Is that what you're going to say, Marsha? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Now, how long should that should it last? How long should a good children's devotion go? <laughs> I I have a rule of thumb I share with my associates that, and I don't know where it came from, but. Uh, I often tell them, take the age of the youngest child up there, and that's how many minutes you get. So if you've got a three-year-old, you go three minutes. If you've got a two-year-old, you get two minutes. You know, that's kind of all you get. Um, is it? I, I, I'm going to tell people, Sarah Spike told me that, that that was good. <laughs> I need to hang my hat on that on somewhere there. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, but you change, but you do change your lesson as you're teaching it. You move from one style to another, from one topic to another. You move down the ladder of what are we doing. So you're you're constantly moving with that. Um, is it a mistake for a minister to use humor in a children's devotion, or in the service at all? Anybody know why I ask this? Because of surveys and where we've gotten blasted in surveys where people have scolded us for daring to use humor in God's house. And, uh, yeah. Now, using humor only for the sake of humor is a little bit different, but using humor as a, a teaching technique is something entirely different, you know, if you're able to do that. Um, and finally, is it possible that a pastor could become too familiar with the children of the church? Absolutely not. The pastors of this church did so much for James by becoming familiar with him. You know, and he would do things like once he's up and developing with me in the women's choir to see and hear Pastor Sutton preaching, something in a sermon he heard. He turns and he goes to me and he says, Where did Pastor Sutton learn about God? And he would not leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he wanted to ask, and Pastor Sutton couldn't understand what he was saying right away. And I said, well, he wants to know how he learned about God. And he said, when he starts saying about how he went to Sunday school, and he's like, like, me? He said, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah. You know, like, all of it just made yeah. such an impact on him by taking yeah. time to talk to him and get to know him, and really built up he has an amazing faith for such a young child. We had a boy uh, at St. Paul's who used to tell me all year round how many months until his birthday and then how many days until his birthday. And he would get excited, my birthday's next week. And I'm like, is it really? <laughs> I, I kind of knew. And, and then he would tell me how old, you know, I'm five now. And, and then he would tell me, you know, it was my birthday two weeks ago. I'm five now. And then it would go on and on and on and on and on. And that boy is now a... I think he's going to be a junior in high school now. He doesn't do that any longer. Although, uh, I think he actually did tell me when it was his birthday a little while ago. There's one little remnant of that, like, oh yeah, it's your birthday. But, um, but yeah, I'm not sure that you could be, maybe, maybe you could become too familiar. I, mean, I don't think we do, but we try to be open to the children and, and, and inviting if, if possible. And, uh, and, um, yeah, and it's also something I've found that I, the majority of our congregation, I know either from the top down or from the bottom up. So I know, because I've known them so long, the grandparents and, and then the family tree that goes down. Or I've met the kids because I know them in school or from Sunday school or whatever, and I kind of have gotten to know their family on the way up. Some of the folks in the middle I'm still not sure of who their dad is or who their grandson is or something like that, but I've got an idea. But that's, that's how you get to know the congregation, so getting to know these kids. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.